What's going on? Welcome to the first episode of the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. My name is Simland and I want to congratulate you for tuning in. Yes, guys, I decided to start a podcast because why not? We'll do it live. You know, I like to experiment with different types of things, with exercise, nutrition, sleep, habits, and starting this podcast is also one of those experiments that I'm going to be doing. I'll write it and we'll do it live. As the title of this podcast says, it's about body-mind empowerment in pursuit of enhancing, enhancing human life. I'll be talking about different topics that would improve your cognition, your physical performance, your longevity, and most importantly, mindset as well. And the first episode of this podcast talks about the first two chapters of my book that I published a few years ago. Without further ado, let's get to it. Do you want to know? what it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body need control your mind if you haven't heard about me before and you're wondering who is this soothing voice that's whispering into your ears then my name is Sim Lund I'm a blogger a best-selling author content creator and YouTube a coach and a self-empowered being. That's the topic of this entire podcast, becoming self-empowered. What it is and how you can get on it, we will discuss soon, but before that, here's some backstory about me. In 2015, I started my blog, www.seamlund.com, genius, I know, and I wrote a few articles about fitness, mindset, and other similar topics. I gained some readers, and I wanted to create a short ebook or a pamphlet for my newsletter sign-up. One page after another I discovered that there's no way I can fit all that information within only 30 to 50 pages and that's when I basically knew that it's gonna be a real full-length book. It kinda just happened and after 30 days I had self-published my first book titled Becoming a Self-Empowered Being, Achieve Body-Mind Mastery and Live Your Purpose. Everything else has kind of gone on from there, you know, I expanded the topics I talk about to all kinds of person development and health. It's what I call human life enhancement through body-mind empowerment. And it's like the most holistic way of becoming the greatest version of yourself, of becoming self-empowered. And that's what I'm planning on dedicating the first few episodes of this podcast for. I'm going to read you some of the best chapters from my book and... We'll see where it goes on from there. Maybe in the future we're gonna have some Q&As, some guests or something else related to really turning yourself into superhumans, so we'll see. If you wanna support this podcast and help spread the message, then leave us a rating on iTunes and other platforms. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and share it with someone else who could benefit from listening to this. Word to mouth is powerful and we need self-empowered beings now more than ever. But for now, I'm going to start reading you the first chapter of the book. Chapter 1. The Initiation We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. Plato Before getting into detail about how to improve our lives and become better human beings, we need to first come clear with some of the terminology. The most important concept of this book is self-empowerment. You might have a definition of your own, but what does it mean here? 
When we dissect the word into distinctive parts, we get the self and empowerment. The self part is quite clear. It's who we are, or at least think of ourselves as. It's our identity, if you will. The empowerment involves the act of giving permission, taking charge of, and making better. By combining the two, we get this unique combustion of words which hint towards personal growth and improvement. In essence, self-empowerment is knowing who we are, what we want out of life, what's best for us, realizing that it's possible, allowing ourselves to have it, making the right decisions, taking steadfast action towards achieving it, and living according to these values. By doing this, we become self-empowered beings, who are in charge of our own existence and have shaped our reality according to our liking. Self-empowerment doesn't mean accepting the cause that we've been dealt with, but rising above adversity and choosing our own hand. It's not coping with life, but instead thriving in it. Such a person is someone who isn't satisfied with anything less than greatness and succeeds despite the turmoil. Everything he sets his mind to can and will be accomplished. There isn't just any other option because the high standard has been set. A self-empowered being is slightly different from the rest of the population. The ability to do great things might not be easily visible to the untrained eye, but it definitely reflects in their actions. These people are the ones who drive the progress of society the ones who refuse to accept anything else but excellence and on whose shoulders civilization is resting upon. They're not necessarily those in power, but they're kings nonetheless. Instead of simply sitting on a throne, they're the ones who lead by example and with their own actions. Their personal growth is what makes up the progress of our species. To make the picture clearer, think of figures like Napoleon Bonaparte who, during his coronation ceremony, grabbed the crown from the Pope and placed it on top of his head. The Pope himself, who at that time was probably considered as God on earth. Napoleon had accomplished his sovereignty. No one in the world had to acknowledge his greatness and name him Emperor. That scene is the perfect example of choosing to become empowered. The father of the Catholic Church held the power, but the young French general literally took it from his hands. It was an atonement in which Napoleon Bonaparte became self-empowered. He had already recognized the capacity within himself and didn't need someone else to give him authorization. Another illustration would be to think about the ingenuity and progress of man as a species in general. It was the desire to free themselves from being reliant on nature that led hunter-gatherers to adopting the use of fire, agriculture, and modern man to electricity. Throughout this book, more historical examples like these will be given. They're all quite different, but they have one thing in common, which is the notion of taking control of one's own reality. What makes these self-empowered people so special? Aside from the fact that they achieve great things on a regular basis, they're also masters of themselves and their craft, whatever it might be. This means that they have dedicated their life to something greater than themselves, a calling or a purpose if you will, and they're working at it constantly. It's their passion and what makes up their existence. Their dedication drives this success and it's the biggest reason for it. 
This notion alone distinguishes them from the rest of the crowd who lack commitment. However, it isn't easily achieved as it might seem to an outsider. Beneath every great accomplishment lie countless hours of effort and cultivation towards perfection. Self-empowered beings are masters of themselves and whatever they're doing, which is the reason they've risen to such great heights. Do you want to know how to join the ranks of such figures? How to achieve your truest potential and manifest your power within? In fact, this book offers more than that. It shows you how to become the master of your own being in the most holistic way possible. It's definitely not for everyone, but for those who are willing and decisive enough to take control of their life. Are you ready to go through this difficult yet incredibly rewarding process? If not, then it would be better to stop right away to avoid the frustration. If however you consider yourself to be worthy enough, then continue reading. That's the end of chapter 1. I think you can already get a basic understanding of what being self-empowered means. It's about finding your inner greatness and striving towards being as great as you can be in all ways possible. Now, the reason why you would want to do this is more than some egotistic or selfish desire. You know, even though Napoleon, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, probably they had big egos, but the idea of self-empowerment is still done for the benefit of humanity as a whole. You as an individual have to be the one who takes responsibility over your own life. Because when you do that, we can all live a better life with more joy, more vitality and more meaning. Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela were equally as self-empowered as the people we've mentioned already. And so can you be. Chapter 2 The Fundamentals One can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. Leonardo da Vinci We can't just one day wake up and choose to become self-empowered. It's only the first of many steps we have to take. Not everyone will do this. There are some preconditions that need to be taken care of beforehand. The fundamental requirement to becoming self-empowered is having self-mastery. We won't be able to deal our own cards for life unless we have control over ourselves. Moreover, it allows us to achieve anything we set our mind to. In return, this promotes confidence in our own eyes as well as those of others. Lack of command has no authority. Therefore, we need to have a certain level of mastery over ourselves. By definition, it will already take us halfway to where we want to get. The importance of self-governance cannot be stressed enough. Is it possible for a person to achieve anything if they do not even have control over themselves? It's not unimaginable, but just incredibly rare and difficult. Think of each and every one of us as a castle. The strength of our walls are dependent on the degree of mastery of the sovereign who governs the place. If he is slothful and incompetent, then the entire structure and its people will suffer. This, however, is something we are readily available to change. New barricades can be built and a king can be educated. As individuals, as well as fortifications, were under constant construction. 
It's up to ourselves to dictate the course of where this development goes. Not only is it beneficial for intrinsic purposes, but for external protection as well. A feeble brick building is something that can be easily pushed over. However, a citadel is something that can stand against the tides of time and make it through centuries. No invader can raid it as it's simply too challenging to conquer. During the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century BC between Athens and Sparta, the former accomplished just that. The Spartan force was superior to that of Athens on land. Their army of hoplites was the strongest in all of Greece and probably the entire world at that time. Despite this one shortcoming, the Athenians had their own advantage, which was their navy. Their empire was built on maritime trade and combat, which made them invincible at sea. The leader of Athens at that time was Pericles, who convinced the city to avoid the Spartan army on land entirely. To achieve this, they built a wall around the port of Piraeus and the city itself. Between the two was a narrow road which granted them access to sea. This allowed the Athenians to ignore their enemy entirely. It didn't matter if their fields were burnt around them because they could bring in supplies from elsewhere. Such a strategy was incredibly sustainable and freed them from external forces. Unfortunately, not everything went according to plan as a plague broke loose inside the city, killing over 30,000 citizens, including Pericles. Being left without a leader who could unite the people, Athens eventually met its demise. The Republic surrendered to the Spartans and their walls were torn down. However, we can learn from their mistakes and still maintain our independence by not falling victims to disease. Without giving away too much information on how to accomplish this preemptively, we'll leave it at that for the time being. Principle number one of this book will give us the answer we're looking for. When we return to our human existence for a moment, we can see the same potential. If we as people have managed to attain a certain level of mastery over ourselves, then there's almost nothing or anyone that could do us harm. Our stronghold will be self-sustainable and independent from external forces. This prosperity is the direct result of the effort that we've put into our development and adeptness cultivated over our mode of being. Self-mastery is similar to its empowered brother in arms. The first part, the self, indicates to who we are and the second, mastery, to expertise of some sort. By combining them, we have a term that describes the ability to dictate one's reality and everything included. It entails a person being in control of everything that concerns them and their existence. This notion is foundational to what we want to achieve. If we aren't in charge of our castle, then we can't possibly carry out any change that will transform our lives. Because the self consists of more than one thing, we need to approach this holistically, meaning in both the body and mind. The notorious French philosopher of the Enlightenment, René Descartes, tried to unravel the mysteries of consciousness and the human experience. In his meditations, he came to the conclusion that if we can doubt of our existence, meaning to trace back our thought process and distinguish our successive experiences from one another, then it's proof to the fact that we exist. 
His original words have been brought together nicely by the quote, Dubito ergo cogito ergo sum, which translates to, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. Descartes saw duality between the body and mind, one of them being our meat suit, and the other a distinct substance or an idea that seats the throne of our intelligence, the mind. Debating over the Cartesian dualism is far beyond the scope nor the purpose of this book, but we should still pause at it for a moment. The Cartesian approach gives too much credit to one while neglecting the importance of the other. The body has a mind of its own of which we are simply unconscious of. Our mind is the one that handles all the mental processes, but the physical plane is out of its expertise. Thoughts are what send signals to the nervous system to initiate actions, but they do not carry them out. By definition, they don't have material substance to them, but they're celestial which manifest themselves through some spatial form of expression like speech, gestures or drawings. Bodily movement doesn't happen out of thin air, but is fueled by muscles. In order for the mental plane to enter the physical world, it needs to be embodied in some way. And what is more, the brain itself is a physical thing belonging to the body. Nevertheless, there are some things relevant to achieving self-mastery. The idea of cultivating it both body and mind is what remains. Instead of being distinctive entities, they're intertwined operating systems. The mechanisms that are being carried out are in a relationship with each other. The body is the mind and the mind is the body. Some evidence to this connection lies in our own posture. The way we hold ourselves sends specific signals to our subconscious mind. Research has shown that these indications release certain hormones within the body. For instance, by slouching over, you will inevitably begin to feel inferior. On the contrary, when you stand on your two feet with confidence and pride, you release more testosterone. Additionally, our thoughts are what influence the way we feel, thus they adjust our posture accordingly. There is a constant back and forth correspondence taking place to which we just have to become more mindful of. Therefore, neglecting one will not actually accomplish what we're after holistically, which is mastery of both the body and mind. However, there is a third entity operating amongst the two. What I'm talking about is our inner spirit. The easiest and most coherent definition to it would be our consciousness. It can be understood as something that makes up who we truly are. While the body and mind sometimes act according to their own rules and instincts, then consciousness is the true self. Achieving mastery over this entity isn't necessary as it already is in alignment with who we are. We just have to listen to it. Where is the self located? Well, there isn't an exact place where you could find and take hold of it. It's more like an image you create in your own head and which you use to correspond with the world. Let me explain you. According to the Trion brain module, our brain is divided into three main regions or parts. The basal ganglia, also called the reptilian brain, is the most primitive part of our brain. It governs balance, territoriality, mating, feeding and other instinctual activities. Then we have the center part that comprises the limbic system, which consists of the septum, amygdala, hypothalamus, hippocampal complex and cingulate cortex. 
This is the mammalian or monkey brain, the brain of emotions and social hierarchies. Finally, at the front, there's the human brain, the cerebral cortex. This is where rational thinking is, especially at the prefrontal cortex. It's the most recent step in the evolution of the mammalian brain and gives the ability for language, abstraction, planning and perception. If you wonder where you are, then the answer is right behind your forehead. That's where the notion of self gets created. But it's more than that. As you can see, there's some correspondence in here as well. The reptilian brain governs your physiological processes such as the need for food and shelter. It's concerned about the physical plane of existence, e.g. the body. The limbic system is based on emotion, feelings and thoughts. It's the mind. The neocortex is above the other two because of being capable of rationality. It's the crown jewel of evolution and human development. I can't tell you whether or not that's where your soul and self lies, but it's still on higher ground. The difference between our spirit and the body and mind is that it's on a higher level of heightened awareness. While the body and mind act based on instinct and emotion respectfully, then the prefrontal cortex gives us the ability to be aware of these processes. This metacognition enables us to think about how we think. It distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom and makes us human. Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, but based on our knowledge, it should be more like, I think about my thinking, therefore I am aware of myself. The spirit is a real substance, which is the foundation to the phenomenon of consciousness. It's the essence that brings together the body and mind. It's not something mystical or necessarily spiritual, but can be potentially looked as something with a physical quantifiable basis. According to the quantum physicist Michio Kaku, consciousness is the number of feedback loops required to create a module of your position in space with relationship with other organisms and time. Let me make it easier to understand. Consciousness is the ability to be aware of oneself and others in space and time. For example, a thermostat has a lower level of consciousness because it only has one dimension of existence, which is to measure temperature. Reptiles follow their instinct and are only concerned with having something in their stomach and reproduction. Monkeys have complex social structures but they still don't possess reason or language. Most advanced of them all is human consciousness. Not only do we think about our thinking, but also can evaluate our position in space and time. We can see ourselves in the past and can create modules of our future selves as well. This creates a massive combination of feedback loops between ourselves in the present, between our past selves, our future selves and all other people who have the same ability. It's a multi-dimensional phenomenon. This meta-awareness changes the game completely. When the body and mind are definitely deeply connected and intertwined with each other, then the spirit is seemingly outside of this loop entirely. The best illustration I can think of is the Illuminati pyramid with the eye at the top, floating above the rest of the structure. 
when you think about the philosophy of the Enlightenment era, from where the Illuminati is said to originate from, then you can see the fittingness of this heuristic. Consciousness is the eye in the pyramid, it's meta-awareness, it's what makes us human. Together these three create the triumvirate of body-mind-spirit. Our consciousness as self-awareness manifests itself in all of these domains, but the spirit is where it originates from. Simply having sentience and self-consciousness, however, isn't enough. Being aware of oneself doesn't mean that you can rise above and start floating above the pyramid. This is where self-mastery comes into play. Self-mastery is the ability or skill of being in complete control of one's being. While consciousness is about being able to create modules of oneself in space and time in relation to other minds, then self-mastery is about recognizing the presence of that awareness and acting according to that. It's being more conscious as a person and knowing that there's a pyramid in the first place. By achieving self-mastery, we have no other way but to behave from the perspective of our rational self. If our neocortical activity is high enough, it's impossible to remain on the subconscious level of the reptilian complex. Acting against the self is out of question when we are conscious because no organism would behave in a way that would harm itself voluntarily unless it's deliberately structured and part of a larger scheme. Self-mastery is not about taking totalitarian control over our lives. It's more like becoming more aware of the fact that some parts of our psyche are automatic and guide our behavior according to their own conduct. In essence, Self-mastery is pure consciousness and reaching higher levels of it. It's the ability to rise above the pyramid, seeing ourselves from an outside perspective and then being able to control our behavior according to what's good for the true self. Mastery of the body-mind-soul triumvirate makes up the foundation of self-empowerment. It consists of our thoughts and actions. The conversations we have in our heads determine the perception of ourselves and the world around us, while the activities we participate in are also detrimental because they make up what we actually do on a daily basis. Both contribute to our individual entities. Through this association, we correlate ourselves with our surroundings. It's our identity, ego, personality, substance, call it whatever you want, but it's still there. Let us for a moment look at our individuality a bit closer. It's made up of the distinction between others and created by self-consciousness. It's what we think and see ourselves as. Ultimately, it's our mode of being in this world. How we dwell, interact, collaborate, move around. Basically everything that makes up our existence. That is where the mind and body come into play. They are the administrators that are in charge of that process which dictates what we do. This habitual development carries over to what we are, the derivation of being. In my opinion, self-mastery equals the ultimate success in life, because by the very nature of the world, we won't only have control over everything concerning ourselves, which is the triumvirate, but also have cultivated it to the utmost perfection according to our liking. By achieving this, we can do anything. 
we are thriving in life because we can dictate the reality in which we dwell. Okay, that's the end of chapter 2. Quite dense and a few difficult concepts in there. And I don't want to go into a debate with anyone about what's the nature of consciousness or the body-mind dualism. I'll leave that for some future episode, but what I do want to tell you is that you should base your understanding of you as a self on this idea that you are not a self. The idea that you are not a self. That you are this higher awareness behind your body and mind. That you're like this ghost in a shell that's playing around in a physical meat suit and that experiences different emotions. Because it's the truth. If you possess enough sentience and can create feedback loops about yourself, then it means you're meta-aware about yourself. This detachment from your body, from your ego, from your mind, will help you to achieve self-mastery, but it will also allow you to elevate your consciousness. I'm not entirely sure about what it means or how it happens, but what I'm certain of is that the starting point should be what we're going to be talking about in the next chapter. So let's continue on with chapter 3, the two things that truly belong to ourselves. Chapter 3, the two things that truly belong to ourselves. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Ralph Waldo Emerson The two things manifested in the physical and mental plane respectfully are what make up our being. Our body is the vessel we use to trade the world with and the mind the captain of this voyage. In an interdependent relationship, both need to be cultivated when in pursuit of self-mastery and empowerment. Ignoring one or the other cannot be characterized as such in a holistic way. So how can we achieve this mastery? By taking charge of the two things that truly belong to ourselves. What I'm talking about are our thoughts and actions. If we were to dig very deep into investigating the manifestation of our being, then we have found it. They can be seen as the instructions or commandments we give to our body and mind, which are but couriers of our messages. We only own the conversations that go on inside our head and the actions we carry out. Everything else is but matter that can be taken away from us at a moment's notice. Having control over our thoughts and actions is important for becoming self-empowered. Manifesting in the body and mind, they are the representations of who we are. Our thoughts have the power to perceive our reality and our actions to create it. By reigning supreme over them, we are the ultimate kings of our castle and have the possibility to transform it into a magnificent citadel. Enkratia in ancient Greek philosophy is often defined as self-control but a much better term to use would be self-governance or mastery. That's what we're trying to accomplish, so that we'll be able to influence our behavior and align it with our true self. The root of the word kratia translates into government, being the basis of 
democratia or democracy, which is rule of the people. Ever since Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, many psychologists afterwards have noted that the human personality is governed by several different sub-egos. Sometimes we act more like a father, a mother, a child, mentor, friend, a soldier, a businessman, etc. There is also, you know, the procrastinator, the hustler, the Casanova, the artist, the extrovert, the athlete, and millions of more. What tends to dominate depends on how much power we've given to one of these egos. It happens on a habitual basis and is influenced by our thoughts and actions. Who we think we are will begin to recreate the patterns of behavior we've omitted to ourselves. This creates a certain circle of personalities inside our psyche. There are going to be several characters who begin to dominate over the others. For instance, you may develop the tendency of always taking things too seriously because you've suppressed your inner child due to some reason. Likewise, you may adopt the mentality of a victim if you've suffered some sort of a psychological trauma in the past, and that's going to make you not trust people as much. As a result, you begin to see the world as a hostile force that's out to get you. It imposes fear and enforces the duality between your ego and the cosmos. The ego will always try to protect itself and not let any other of these personalities into its inner circle. Why is that so? It's afraid of losing its throne and thus perishing. Survival is detrimental for the reproduction of the ego's agenda. Its only interest has to do with making the cut itself and surviving at the expense of others. This is evident in biology as well, as is shown by the book of Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. According to his writings, us humans are nothing else but vessels for carrying on our genes throughout the generations. They influence our behavior and are solely interested in winning the natural selection. That's how evolution works. Organisms are trying to reproduce their own genes so that they could survive. It's the invisible law of the entire universe. But us humans also have another benefit compared to other animals. Yet again, our meta-awareness about ourselves and the world around us have managed to show us the existence of this thing called evolution, if it's even an existing thing at all. The running cheetah in the savannah isn't aware about the selective pressures it's creating by chasing down gazelle. What ensues is an arms race in which representatives of these two species will try to outclever themselves by getting faster and smarter. It's natural selection, but it happens unconsciously to them. Those who don't make the cut will simply be replaced by those who possess more beneficial traits. And so the cycle continues. It's invisible to them as they act on their physiological urges. However, humans have created this whole concept around evolution and everything else in the world as well. Our consciousness has managed to rise above evolution, but our primal bodies and minds suffer from time lag and are still stuck in that circuitry. We're almost trapped inside of it because we're still biological creatures with an expiration date. 
We can feel the unlimited potential of becoming something more than human. Something ethereal with higher levels of consciousness our monkey minds could never even preconceive, but we don't know how to manifest it. This is the greatest anxiety of the human condition. By the same token, we're beginning to take control of our own evolution thanks to our meta-awareness and something called niche construction. In essence, niche construction is an organism's ability to shape their own environment according to their liking and thus boosting their reproductive success. In beavers, it's building dams at lakes and thus flooding entire forest areas. In humans, it's skyscrapers, central heating, agriculture, airplanes, highways, the internet and so on. We're at the stage of our development where we're beginning to rise above evolution, the ultimate natural selection. It's culture rising above nature, which some anthropologists call after nature. Instead of going through adaptation, we're at the doorstep of achieving a term that I've coined to be adaptation, which is adept and attation. It entails us having attained total understanding over the laws of physics and manipulating it according to our will. We're beginning to become gods. It's essential to orchestrate these different facets of our being into a harmonious union rather than being ruled by chaos and a disorganized personality, which in ancient Greece was called akrasia. Psychologically, self-mastery is also the emergence of a special sub-ego, the inner governor or the master or the adept who directs the others. However, that character isn't derived from the ego. It's from our higher levels of consciousness, the spirit who is meta-aware about the presence of this entire conundrum. Enkratia was also one of the themes of Plato's masterpiece, The Republic, which on its surface talks about politics, but it also serves as a metaphor to understanding the principles of inner governance. For Plato himself, the only way to achieve this effectively is to let the inner governor or the master take the form of a philosopher or a lover of wisdom, the one who seeks the truth about oneself and the world. If you base your self-identity around on seeking truth and objective knowledge rather than on the egotistic desire of wanting to be right or certain, then your likelihood of being more meta and logical increases enormously. That's where the master of oneself is needed. There are still other sub-egos that remain who will begin to fight for the domain. Plato uses another metaphor for this of a ship's captain and his crew who are prone towards mutiny. The self is the captain and our egos are the mutinous crew. Self-mastery isn't about asserting masochistic dominance over our being, but in the context of self-empowerment, is a means of creating a well-organized inner governance that's meta-aware and able to control the conduct of what goes on inside us. It's about operating from the perspective of our higher self, the one who's conscious and knows what's going on. Plato explains it further in the Republic with the allegory of the cave, saying that everything we perceive in the world are mere shadows of the real reality. 
Imagine yourself being imprisoned in a cave. You're facing a wall and it's what you've seen your entire life. There are some shadows being projected onto the wall from a fire behind us. We can see images of people, events and other things. These shadows are as close as we can get to viewing reality. We think that the shadows are all there is, that this is life, whereas they're simply illusions played on us by the tricksters who are manipulating the fire and the shadows. That's the ancient Greek idea about how so many people are stuck in the matrix. The philosopher is the one who has managed to be freed from the prison and realized that the shadows are only reflections of what's real. It describes the state in which the majority of the population is in. They think that they are their mind, that they have to go to a 9 to 5, get married, follow certain traditions, without ever realizing that there's another way. They're still chained to the wall without having reached meta-awareness and enkratia. Self-mastery is within all of us. A great real-world example of achieving such mastery would be Viktor Frankl, who is a Holocaust survivor with a written account of his story called Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a Jewish psychologist in Germany and during the Second World War he was sent to Auschwitz where he spent three long years of drudgery. There he endured countless dreadful sufferings and ordeals. Despite all that, he came out of the imprisonment alive and changed the rest of his life for good. When in Auschwitz, he and his fellow prisoners realized that the human condition allows them to adapt to any situation they were thrown into. The people went through incredible hardship and suffering, such as starvation, hard labor, humiliation and physical punishment. They were so close to hell as ever possible, but despite that, there was still a significant amount of people who didn't break. Most prisoners couldn't cope with reality. They saw their destiny as predetermined and therefore they soon died, while there were others who remained unshakable in the face of resistance. Nevertheless, Frankl and many others managed to maintain a positive attitude towards the negative events that happened to them. Some were actually thankful that their family members didn't have to suffer alongside them. Others simply associated their agony with a bigger cause than themselves. Frankl discovered that it had to do with how they interpreted their situations, most importantly, how they thought that all their sufferings must have had some sort of a meaning. There wasn't. I mean, there is no justification to kill children, women, elders and men of all ages, to torture them, to starve them, enslave them, humiliate them. But for Frankl and the prisoners, there was. Behind all that torture was a greater meaning because they themselves created it there. You might think, ignorant fools, how can you be so naive? Obviously the thing was wrong, but you're mistaken. Such a mindset allowed them to accomplish nothing short of the impossible. With that kind of a mentality, they could reframe how they experienced their suffering. Instead of being famished, they found new strength to continue. Instead of thinking, why me? They thought, thank God it's me. Thank God it's me.
and not my loved ones. Instead of being defeated, they became victorious. Another essential aspect to this was how the prisoner envisioned the future and how they absorbed meaning from their vision in the particular present moment. The moment when they were carrying big rocks for hours upon end through mud and torture. The moment when the guards were beating them with their guns and making the prisoners fight between each other. The moment they were cast into icy dungeons on the frozen stone floor. The moment they could, despite all of that, still look up to the sky and be grateful for the warm ray of sun that soon disappeared again. It brought a bit of meaning to their miserable existence as well. Those who couldn't take it any longer died. Those who managed to stay in control eventually survived and saw freedom once again. This story is not only important for describing what went on in the concentration camps, but it also reveals insight into the power within us all. Every prisoner's reaction depended on how they had thus far associated the situation, but a lot more important was the opportunity for free will. Free will which we all possess, even in torture. Marcus Aurelius, the famous philosopher king of the Roman Empire at 2nd century AD, realized the presence of this same force. In his journal, which later was published under the name of Meditations, he reflected daily on the capabilities of our mind. From those writings can be found several important ideas that are fundamental to Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius was truly a master of himself. Being the most powerful person in the entire world, he still remained humble and mindful of the fact that he's just like any other human being. His authority would have allowed him to do anything. If someone disobeyed him, he could have simply executed them. Instead, he decided to become a virtuous character and the emperor of not only his nation, but to become an emperor to himself first and foremost. Everything that happened to him was an opportunity for him to practice taking control of his thoughts and actions, his initial reaction and what he did in response. He was considered to be the last of the five good emperors as Commodus, his son and heir, didn't possess such traits and never managed to reach the same level of respect as his father did because he was very compulsive and he had a selfish personality. The happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. All of these quotes by Marcus Aurelius indicate towards the hidden capabilities within us all that allow us to become masters of ourselves. Such mastery is something that's readily accessible to all of us. We just have to realize its presence and tap into it. The school of Stoic philosophy coincides with the notion that the two things that truly belong to ourselves are our thoughts and actions. Emotions can also be grasped under this term as they're the manifestations of both. These internal forces are what we are in control of. 
we can dictate the way they're expressed and influence our reality. Therefore, mastering them is essential. Our thoughts and actions make up the whole of who we are as individuals. If we do big things, then we are a great person. It's the correlation between doing and being. The mind and body are the ones that need to be mastered though. However, the word mastery sounds a bit demeaning. It makes us look like slaves who need to be dominated over. That's not how I want to picture this. A much more preferable term to this would be self-empowerment, which is why I have chosen it. It completely discards any notion of a superior subordinate relationship. Instead, it acknowledges the fact that uncultivated people tend to be the prisoners of themselves. Freeing ourselves from that vicious cycle is where our meta-awareness accompanied by discipline and sheer determination comes into play. However, there is also something I like about the word self-mastery. The first part indicates to our individuality, which combined with the second can be translated to becoming our best selves. It's about trying to achieve our truest potential and not settling for anything less. And that's the end of chapter 3. It's, it's more philosophical but still thought-provoking, I'm sure. These topics and ideas are something that I'm constantly thinking about myself. Am I really aware? When do I tend to slip back into some of the less truthful aspects of the ego and whether or not my thoughts and actions are aligned with what I want to accomplish in life. It's a never-ending process, really. In the allegory of the cave, when the philosopher managed to get out of the cave, he saw the real sunlight, he realized the truth, and it was beautiful. It was so beautiful that he didn't want to go back into the cave, back into the shadows. And I can tell you that once you start having similar revelations about yourself and your purpose, then it becomes increasingly more difficult to become unaware. Once you wake up, you don't want to go back to sleep. Once you get out of the matrix, you don't want to go ever back into it again, as long as you base your self-identity around seeking the truth rather than on wanting to be right. Oh, I'm just that kind of a person or that just that's just how human nature works. No. You're just you're just trying to avoid uncertainty and change because it's incredibly uncomfortable to be constantly challenging your own beliefs and behavior. But how to do that we will cover in the next episode. Episode 3 of the self-empowered podcast is going to be how to escape the matrix of your mind. It's not from the original book, but I think it has to be squeezed in between the coming chapters because it's really what can help you to attain this meta-awareness perspective. And if you want to support this podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes and other social media platforms, wherever they may be. Subscribe to my YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram because... It's the best way to spread this message of self-empowerment and becoming more meta. The more people we can pull out of the matrix, the faster the development of our species will be. Thanks for listening. 
Think about what we're discussing here today and I wish you a good day. My name is Seem. Stay empowered.